Book Six, Chapter Forty One of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Six, Chapter Forty One. A week later, Ellesmere was startled to find himself detained after his storytelling by a trio of workmen asking on behalf of some thirty or forty members of the North R Club that he would give them a course of lectures on the New Testament. One of them was the gas-fitter, Charles Richards. Another was the watchmaker, Lestrange, who had originally challenged Robert to deliver himself, and the third was a tough old Scotchman of sixty with a philosophical turn, under whose spoutings of Hume and Locke, of Reed and Dugald Stewart, delivered in the shrillest of cracked voices, the club had writhed many an impatient half-hour on debating nights. He had an unexpected artistic gift, a kind of sport as compared with the rest of his character, which made him a valued designer in the pottery works. But his real interests were speculative and argumentative, concerned with combinations in the primary elements of reason, and the appearance of Robert in the district seemed to offer him at last a foeman worthy of his steel. Ellesmere shrewdly suspected that the last two looked forward to any teaching he might give, mostly as a new and favourable exercising ground for their own wits. But he took the risk, gladly accepted the invitation, and fixed Sunday afternoons for a weekly New Testament lecture. His first lecture, which he prepared with great care, was delivered to thirty-seven men a fortnight later. It was on the political and social state of Palestine and the East at the time of Christ's birth, and Robert, who was as fervent a believer in large maps as Lord Salisbury, had prepared a goodly store of them for the occasion, together with a number of drawings and photographs which formed part of the collection he had been gradually making since his own visit to the Holy Land. There was nothing he laid more stress on than these helps to the eye and imagination in dealing with the Bible. He was accustomed to maintain in his arguments with Hugh Flaxman that the orthodox traditional teaching of Christianity would become impossible as soon as it should be the habit to make a free and modern use of history and geography and social material in connection with the Gospels. Nothing tends so much, he would say, to break down the irrational barrier which men have raised about this particular tract of historical space. Nothing helps so much to let in the light and air of scientific thought upon it, and therefore nothing prepares the way so effectively for a series of new conceptions. By a kind of natural selection, Richards became Ellesmere's chief helper and adjutant in the Sunday lectures. With regard to all such matters as beating up recruits, keeping guard over portfolios, handing round maps and photographs, etc., supplanting in this function the jealous and sensitive Mackay, who, after his original opposition, had now arrived at regarding Robert as his own particular property, and the lecturer's quick smile of thanks for services rendered as his own especial right. The bright, quicksilvery, irascible little workman, however, was irresistible, and had his way. He had taken a passion for Robert as for a being of another order and another world. In the discussions which generally followed the lecture, he showed a receptiveness and intelligence which were in reality a matter not of the mind, but of the heart. He loved, therefore he understood. At the club he stood for Ellesmere with a quivering spasmodic eloquence, as against Andrews and the secularists. One thing only puzzled Robert. Among all the little fellow's sallies and indiscretions, which were not infrequent, no reference to his home life was ever included. Here he kept even Robert absolutely at arm's length. Robert knew that he was married and had children, nothing more. 
The old Scotchman, MacDonald, came out after the first lecture, somewhat crestfallen. "'Not the sort of stuff I'd expected,' he said, with a shade of perplexity on his rugged face. "'He doesn't talk enough in the abstract for me.' But he went again, and the second lecture, on the origin of the Gospels, got hold of him, especially as it supplied him with a whole armoury of new arguments in support of Hume's doctrine of conscience, and in defiance of that blighting creature read. The thesis with which Robert, drawing on some of the stores supplied him by the squire's book, began his account, i.e. the gradual growth within the limits of history of man's capacity for telling the exact truth, fitted in to the Scotsman's thinking, so providentially with his own favourable experimental doctrines, as against the intuition folks, who will have it that a baby's got as much mind as Mr. Gladstone if he only knew it, that afterwards he never missed a lecture. Lestrange was more difficult. He had the inherited temperament of the Genevese Frondeur, which made Geneva the headquarters of Calvinism in the sixteenth century, and bids fair to make her the headquarters of continental radicalism in the nineteenth. Robert never felt his wits so much stretched and sharpened as when, after the lecture, Lestrange was putting questions and objections with an acrid subtlety and persistence worthy of a descendant of that burgher class which first built up the Calvinistic system and then produced the destroyer of it in Rousseau. Robert bore his heckling, however, with great patience and adroitness. He had need of all he knew, as Murray Edwards had warned him. But luckily he knew a great deal. His thought was clearing and settling month by month, and whatever he may have lost at any moment by the turn of a little argument, he recovered immediately afterwards by the force of personality, and of a single-mindedness in which there was never a trace of personal grasping. Week by week the lecture became more absorbing to him, the men more pliant, his hold on them firmer. His disinterestedness, his brightness and resource, perhaps too the signs about him of a light and frail physical organisation, the novelty of his position, the inventiveness of his method, gave him little by little an immense power in the place. After the first two lectures, Murray Edwards became his constant and enthusiastic hearer on Sunday afternoons, and, catching some of Robert's ways and spirit, he gradually brought his own chapel and teaching more and more into line with the Elgood Street undertaking, so that the venture of the two men began to take even larger proportions, and, kindled by the growing interest and feeling about him, dreams began to rise in Ellesmere's mind which as yet he hardly dared to cherish, which came and went, however, weaving a substance for themselves out of each successive incident and effort. Meanwhile, he was at work on an average three evenings in the week besides the Sunday. In West End drawing-rooms his personal gift had begun to tell no less than then this crowded, squalid East, and as his aims became known, other men, finding the thoughts of their own hearts revealed in him, or touched with that social compunction which is one of the notes of our time, came down and became his helpers. Of all the social projects of which that Elgood Street room became the centre, Ellesmere was, in some sense, the life and inspiration. But it was not these projects themselves which made this period of his life remarkable. London, at the present moment, if it be honeycombed with vice and misery, is also honeycombed with the labour of an ever-expanding charity. Week by week, men and women of like gifts and energies with Ellesmere spend themselves, as he did, in the constant effort to serve and to alleviate. What was noticeable, what was remarkable in this work of his, was the spirit, the religious passion which, radiating from him, 
began after a while to kindle the whole body of men about him. It was from his Sunday lectures and his talks with the children, boys and girls, who came in after the lecture to spend a happy hour and a half with him on Sunday afternoons, that in later years hundreds of men and women will date the beginnings of a new, absorbing life. There came a time, indeed, when instead of meeting criticism by argument, Robert was able simply to point to accomplished facts. "'You ask me,' he would say, in effect, "'to prove to you that men can love, can make a new and fruitful use for daily life and conduct of a merely human Christ. Go amongst our men, talk to our children, and satisfy yourself.' A little while ago scores of these men either hated the very name of Christianity, or were entirely indifferent to it. To scores of them now the name of the teacher of Nazareth, the victim of Jerusalem, is dear and sacred. His life, his death, his words, are becoming once more a constant source of moral effort and spiritual hope. See for yourself. However, we are anticipating. Let us go back to May. One beautiful morning, Robert was sitting working in his study, his windows open to the breezy blue sky and the budding plane-trees outside, when the door was thrown open and Mr. Wendover was announced. The squire entered. But what a shrunken and aged squire! The gait was feeble. The bearing had lost all its old erectness. The bronzed strength of the face had given place to a waxen and ominous pallor. Robert, springing up with joy to meet the great gust of mule air, which seemed to blow about him with the mention of the squire's name, was struck, arrested. He guided his guest to a chair with an almost filial carefulness. "'I don't believe, squire,' he exclaimed, "'you ought to be doing this, wandering about London by yourself.' But the squire, as silent and angular as ever when anything personal to himself was concerned, would take no notice of the implied anxiety and sympathy. He grasped his umbrella between his knees with a pair of brown, twisted hands, and, sitting very upright, looked critically round the room. Robert, studying the dwindled figure, remembered with a pang the saying of another Oxford scholar, apropos of the death of a young man of extraordinary promise. What learning has perished with him! How vain seems all toil to acquire! And the words, as they passed through his mind, seemed to him to ring another death knell. But after the first painful impression, he could not help losing himself in the pleasure of the familiar face, the Muirwall associations. How is the village and the institute? And what sort of man is my successor? The man, I mean, who came after Armistead. I had him once to dinner, said the squire briefly. He made a false quantity, and asked me to subscribe to the Church Missionary Society. I haven't seen him since. He and the village have been at loggerheads about the institute, I believe. He wanted to turn out the dissenters. Bateson came to me, and we circumvented him, of course. But the man's an ass. Don't talk of him. Robert sighed a long sigh. Was all his work undone? It wrung his heart to remember the opening of the Institute, the ardour of his boys. He asked a few questions about individuals, but soon gave it up as hopeless. The squire neither knew nor cared. And Mrs. Darcy? "'My sister had tea in her thirtieth summer-house last Sunday,' remarked the squire grimly. "'She wished me to communicate the fact to you and Mrs. Ellesmere. "'Also that the worst novel of the century will be out in a fortnight, "'and she trusts you to see it well reviewed in all the leading journals.' Robert laughed, but it was not very easy to laugh. There was a sort of ghastly undercurrent in the squire's sarcasms, 
that effectually deprived him of anything mirthful. "'And your book?' "'Mer's in abeyance. I shall bequeath you the manuscript of my will to do what you like with.' "'Squire!' "'Quite true. If you'd stayed, I should have finished it, I suppose. But after a certain age, the toil of spinning cobwebs entirely out of his own brain becomes too much for a man.' It was the first thing of the sort that Arne Mouth had ever said to him. Ellesmere was painfully touched. "'You must not—you shall not give it up,' he urged. "'Publish the first part alone, and ask me for any help you please.' The squire shook his head. "'Well, let it be. Your paper in the nineteenth century showed me that the best thing I could do is to hand on my materials to you. Though I am not sure that, when you have got them, you will make the best use of them. You and Grey between you call yourselves liberals, and imagine yourselves reformers.' and all the while you are doing nothing but playing into the hands of the blacks. All this theistic philosophy of yours only means so much grist to the mill in the end. "'They don't see it in that light themselves,' said Robert, smiling. "'No,' returned the squire, "'because most men are puzzle-heads. "'Why?' he added, looking darkly at Robert, while the great head fell forward on his breast in the familiar Muriel attitude. "'Why can't you do your work and let the preaching alone?' "'Because,' said Robert, the preaching seems to me my work. There is the great difference between us, squire. You look upon knowledge as an end in itself. It, it may be so. But to me knowledge has always been valuable, first and foremost, for its bearing on life. Fatal twist that, returned the squire harshly. Yes, I know, it was always in you. Well, are you happy that this new crusade of yours give you pleasure? Happiness replied Robert, leaning against the chimney-piece and speaking in a low voice, is always relative. No one knows it better than you. Life is full of oppositions. But the work takes my whole heart and all my energies." The squire looked at him in disapproving silence for a while. "'You will bury your life in it miserably,' he said at last. "'It would be a toil of Sisyphus, leaving no trace behind it, whereas such a book as you might write, if you gave your life to it, might live and work and harry the enemy when you were gone." Robert forbore the natural retort. The squire went round his library, making remarks, with all the caustic shrewdness natural to him, on the new volumes that Robert had acquired since their walks and talks together. "'The Germans,' he said at last, putting back a book into the shelves, with a new accent of distaste and weariness, "'are beginning to founder in the sea of their own learning.' Sometimes I think I will read no more German. It is a nation of learned fools, none of whom ever sees an inch beyond his own professorial nose." Then he stayed to luncheon, and Catherine, moved by many feelings, perhaps in subtle striving against her own passionate sense of wrong at this man's hands, was kind to him, and talked and smiled indeed so much that the squire for the first time in his life took individual notice of her, and as he parted with Ellesmere in the hall, made the remark that Mrs. Ellesmere seemed to like London, to which Robert, busy in an opportune search for his guest's coat, made no reply. "'When are you coming to Muirwell?' the squire said to him abruptly, as he stood at the door, muffled up, as though it were December. "'There are a good many points in that last article you want talking to about. Come next month with Mrs. Ellesmere.' Robert drew a long breath, inspired by many feelings. "'I will come, but not yet.' I must get broken in here more thoroughly first. Muirwell touches me too deeply, and my wife. You are going abroad in the summer, you say. Let me come to you in the autumn. 
The squire said nothing, and went his way, leaning heavily on his stick across the square. Robert felt himself a brute to let him go, and almost ran after him. That evening Robert was disquieted by the receipt of a note from a young fellow of St. Anselm's, an intimate friend and occasional secretary of Gray. Gray, the writer said, had received Robert's last letter, was deeply interested in his account of his work, and begged him to write again. He would have written but that he was himself in the doctor's hands, suffering from various ills, probably connected with an attack of malarial fever which had befallen him in Rome the year before. Catherine found him poring over the letter, and as it seemed to her, oppressed by an anxiety out of all proportion to the news itself. "'They are not really troubled, I think,' she said, kneeling down beside him and laying her cheek against his. "'He will soon get over it, Robert.' But alas, this mood, the tender, characteristic mood of the old Catherine, was becoming rarer and rarer with her. As the spring expanded, as the sun and the leaves came back, poor Catherine's temper had only grown more wintry and more rigid. Her life was full of moments of acute suffering. Never, for instance, did she forget the evening of Robert's lecture to the club. All the time he was away she had sat brooding by herself in the drawing-room, divining with a bitter clairvoyance all that scene in which he was taking part, her being shaken with a tempest of misery and repulsion. And together with that torturing image of a glaring room in which her husband, once Christ's loyal minister, was employing all his powers of mind and speech to make it easier for ignorant men to desert and fight against the Lord who brought them, there mingled a hundred memories of her father, which were now her constant companions. In proportion, as Robert and she became more divided, her dead father resumed a ghostly hold upon her. There were days when she went about rigid and silent, in reality living altogether in the past, among the grey farms, the crags, and the stony ways of the mountains. At such times her mind would be full of pictures of her father's ministrations, his talks with the shepherds on the hills, with the women at their doors, his pale dreamer's face beside some wild deathbed, shining with the divine message, the visions which to her awestruck childish sense would often seem to hold him in their silent walks among the misty hills. Robert, taught by many small indications, came to recognise these states of feeling in her with a dismal clearness, and to shrink more and more sensitively while they lasted from any collision with her. He kept his work, his friends, his engagements, to himself, talking resolutely of other things, she trying to do the same, but with less success, as her nature was less pliant than his. Then there would come moments when the inward preoccupation would give way, and that strong need of loving, which was, after all, the basis of Catherine's character, would break hungrily through, and the wife of their early married days would reappear, though still only with limitations. A certain nervous physical dread of any approach to a particular range of subjects with her husband was always present in her. Nay, through all these months it gradually increased in morbid strength. Shock had produced it. Perhaps shock alone could loosen the stifling pressure of it. But still every now and then her mood was brighter, more caressing, and the area of common mundane interests seemed suddenly to broaden for them. Robert did not always make a wise use of these happier times. He was incessantly possessed with his old idea 
that if she only would allow herself some very ordinary intercourse with his world, her mood would become less strained, his occupations and his friends would cease to be such bugbears to her, and, for his comfort and hers, she might ultimately be able to sympathise with certain sides, at any rate, of his work. So, again and again, when her manner no longer threw him back on himself, he made efforts and experiments, but he managed them far less cleverly than he would have managed anybody else's affairs, as generally happens. For instance, at a period when he was feeling more enthusiasm than usual for his colleague Wardlaw, and when Catherine was more accessible than usual, it suddenly occurred to him to make an effort to bring them together. Brought face to face, each must recognise the nobleness of the other. He felt boyishly confident of it. So he made it a point, tenderly but insistently, that Catherine should ask Wardlaw and his wife to come and see them. And Catherine, driven obscurely by a longing to yield in something which recurred, and often terrified herself, yielded in this. The Wardlaws, who in general never went into society, were asked to a quiet dinner in Bedford Square, and came. Then, of course, it appeared that Robert, with the idealist blindness, had forgotten a hundred small differences of temperament and training which must make it impossible for Catherine, in a state of tension, to see the hero in James Wardlaw. It was an unlucky dinner. James Wardlaw, with all his heroisms and virtues, had long ago dropped most of those delicate intuitions and divinations which make the charm of life in society along the rough paths of a strenuous philanthropy. He had no tact, and, like most saints, he drew a certain amount of inspiration from a contented ignorance of his neighbour's point of view. Also, he was not a man who made much of women, and he held strong views as to the subordination of wives. It never occurred to him that Robert might have a dissenter in his own household, and as, in spite of their speculative differences, he had always been accustomed to talk freely with Robert, he now talked freely to Robert plus his wife, assuming, as every good comptist does, that the husband is the wife's pope. Moreover, a solitary, eccentric life, far from the society of his equals, had developed in him a good many crude Jacobinisms. His experience of London clergymen, for instance, had not been particularly favourable, and he had a store of anecdotes on the subject which Robert had heard before, but which now, repeated in Catherine's presence, seemed to have lost every shred of humour they once possessed. Poor Ellesmere tried with all his might to divert the stream, but it showed a tormenting tendency to recur to the same channel. And meanwhile the little spectacled wife, dressed in a high homemade cashmere, sat looking at her husband with a benevolent and smiling admiration. She kept all her eloquence for the poor. After dinner things grew worse. Mrs. Wardlaw had recently presented her husband with a third infant, and the ardent pair had taken advantage of the visit to London of an eminent French comptist to have it baptised with full comptist rites. Wardlaw stood astride on the rug, giving the assembled company a minute account of the ceremony observed, while his wife threw in gentle explanatory interjections. The manner of both showed a certain exasperating confidence, if not in the active sympathy, at least in the impartial curiosity of their audience, and in the importance to modern religious history of the incident itself. Catherine's silence grew deeper and deeper. The conversation fell entirely to Robert. At last Robert, by main force, as it were, got Wardlaw off into politics, 
but the new Irish coercion bill was hardly introduced before the irrepressible Bean turned to Catherine and said to her with smiling obtuseness, "'I don't believe I've seen you at one of your husband's Sunday addresses yet, Mrs. Ellesmere, and it isn't so far from this part of the world either.' Catherine slowly raised her beautiful large eyes upon him. Robert, looking at her with a qualm, saw an expression he was learning to dread flash across the face. "'I have my Sunday school at that time, Mr. Wardlaw. I am a churchwoman.' The tone had a touch of hauteur Robert had hardly ever heard from his wife before. It effectually stopped all further conversation. Wardlaw fell into silence, reflecting that he had been a fool. His wife, with a timid flush, drew out her knitting, and stuck to it for the twenty minutes that remained. Catherine immediately did her best to talk, to be pleasant, but the discomfort of the little party was too great. It broke up at ten, and the Wardlaws departed. Catherine stood on the rug while Ellesmere went with his guests to the door, waiting restlessly for her husband's return. Robert, however, came back to her, tired, wounded, and out of spirits, feeling that the attempt had been wholly unsuccessful, and shrinking from any further talk about it. He at once sat down to some letters for the late post. Catherine lingered a little, watching him, longing miserably, like any girl of eighteen, to throw herself on his neck and reproach him for their unhappiness, his friends, she knew not what. He all the time was intimately conscious of her presence, of her pale beauty, which now, at twenty-nine, in spite of its severity, had a subtler finish and attraction than ever, of the restless little movements so unlike herself which she made from time to time. But neither spoke except upon indifferent things. Once more the difficult conditions of their lives seemed too obvious, too oppressive. Both were ultimately conquered by the same sore impulse to let speech alone. End of Book 6, Chapter 41